Amen. Thank you, Rachel and the bands. That was incredible. Let me dismiss our school-age kids to go see Miss Robin in the back. And as they're headed there, let me encourage all the rest of you with us uh, to open your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Just want to say a couple quick things in the introduction. Everyone got a big popsicle stick when you came in, and I'm sorry there's no popsicle on it. It's just the stick, uh, and that is on purpose. Uh, we'll get to that here in a little bit. And then even in the song we just sang, I was just reminded in my time with the Lord this morning, reading uh, in the Psalms, uh, 60, 62, 63, 64, <clears throat> how many times the psalmist says, my rock of help. And that song we just sang, Ebenezer, that's, that's the translation of my, my rock of help and or my rock of salvation sometimes and it's amazing in the history of God's people how when they were wandering in the desert God provided them water through a rock you remember that and a lot of historians said they begin to carry that rock around with them and God told Moses to speak to the rock and he did and then the psalmist talks so much about this that God is my rock and my refuge and then Jesus would come and he would call Peter the rock and then he would say that the gates of hell would not prevail against the rock that is the, the church that is built on that such of a foundation. So um, it's amazing that in the turbulent times that we live in and certainly that we will live in in our lifetime that God is the rock that never changes. Let me read the passage to you in Philippians uh, chapter 1. And I do apologize. When we, normally when we start a book, we just kind of linearly follow it through. And we have kind of been all over the place uh, in Philippians. And we're going to continue in maybe a little bit more linear fashion. <clears throat> the problem was, is I challenge you to read through the book of Philippians every day. And I hope you're doing that or once a week or however you're doing it. You can listen to it in 12 minutes just by listening to it. And that's about how long it takes you to get through, drive through somewhere. But there's so many great things in this letter that keeps just ministering to my soul. Chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ with envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray as we open your word that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, do the work that needs to be done in our hearts. A lot of us have come in here just a busy morning and wrangling kids and serving and all the things that have been going on. And I pray that you would still our mind and heart, that we would be able to focus on you and your word. And how incredible is it that the God who opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence wants to 
speak to us today, individually. Bring conviction and encouragement. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love this passage because Paul is so very clear about his ultimate priority in life. If you missed it, it was right there in verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, and if you underline, you might underline this part, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. In the midst of a very confusing time, Paul is very clear, very certain, very focused about his ultimate priority in life. And maybe we'll start today with a question for you, if you would ask yourself honestly, what is your crystal clear, ultimate, white hot with passion priority in your life? What are you most hope for? What would you pay the greatest price for, even if it costs you blood and sweat and tears? Even as costly as it was, even in the cost, you would say that was certainly worth it. Is it your career or your security and stability or your family or the family you hoped for? Is it your happiness or your comfort or your success? Is it your country? What would you suffer gladly for? Who or what is worth it to you? Now, whether we realize it or not, we all have this internal list of priorities. Whether conscious or unconscious, we all have this list of values or goals or priorities that we live for and will certainly sacrifice for. A lot of us think we can discover what those priorities are by taking a, an extended vacation or a Sabbath of sorts or maybe through counseling or maybe even through setting new goals at the first of the year, every new year. But that's not really the way I found things to work. You know how you really find what your ultimate priorities are when they cost you something? Do you remember when the pandemic started? Just, I mean, just when we're getting wind of it and sports started canceling and we're like, oh, this might really be a, a real thing. And then Tom Hanks got it and we're like, whoa, is this, everybody gets a little scared. You remember the first thing we ran out of? Yeah, it wasn't the ice cream or the filet mignon. It had toilet paper. It was toilet paper. Because when things cost us something and the crunch happened, you know what we saw? This is what is most valuable to me. It was toilet paper. And so everyone went to grab it. Silly illustration, but the news of difficulty revealed our, our priorities. What are your priorities? Not just the ones you say in church, but at the end of the day, the ones that you really know, the one that your checkbook reflects, the one that your calendar reflects. When you have to suffer for it, when it costs you something, we could have easily bone past this today, but I really just wanted to pause and just kind of hone in. So it really is a simple message. But Paul lets us know his priority, his greatest concern 
is that the gospel go forth. It's his, it's his greatest concern. I mean, there's nothing else that even competes with it. It's that Christ is preached and the gospel is advanced. And look, it, it's not even a begrudging priority. Toilet paper was a little begrudging priority. We were at the beach when we got the news and everything here was out and we were in Alabama and we're like, well, let's stop at every gas station we see between here and there and pay three times the amount for the toilet paper. No kidding. So when we pulled back into Shreveport Bossier, you couldn't see out of any windows because we had bought all the toilet paper and stacked it on top of our luggage. When things got difficult, right, that's, that was the priority, but that was a begrudging priority. I didn't want to have to stop and get that. I didn't want to pay a dollar a roll somewhere for that. But that's not, Paul's priority is not begrudging. He actually rejoices in this priority. To remind you, Paul's in jail in Rome. And he's waiting to see the Caesar, Nero. But he assures this church, the church is concerned with him, for him, because he's still stuck in jail. And so he writes them to comfort them, but not one time did he ask or say, hey, if you could just pray for my release. He didn't, he never asked that. Instead, he reassures him that his very presence in prison was serving a more ultimate purpose. That people were coming to Christ and the gospel was moving forward. And this is a very stinging question, and it was to my heart even this week as I studied it. Friends, is that your heart? At the end of the day, is it really your heart that the good news of Jesus is spread through your life, and it's for that reason that you're willing to suffer? That no matter what, God is glorified in Christ just preach, whether that means difficulty or discomfort. Whether that means rejection or social awkwardness. This was the heart of Jesus. He told his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus understood that the disciples needed to pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done because he knew how easy it would be for us, for them to be so distracted by so many lesser priorities. From the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon, to the last command in the Great Commission where he says to go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus revealed that his heart and the heart of God the Father for his followers would be that we would take joy in spreading the good news. That we would pray for his kingdom to come and we would share with others this good news of God's plan of restoration and reconciliation and redemption. Paul understood this. Paul lived this way. Paul so longed for Christ to be known that he actually rejoices in this moment of suffering. Because he knows that through his situation, the gospel is progressing. He mentions two ways that him being in jail actually is served.
Check, check. There we go. Oh, man, now I really feel like a comedian. I got this thing. You got to watch out for the dead jokes. Paul mentions two ways that his being in prison is going to really just serve to advance the gospel. Look at it again in verse 12 with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are so much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see what he said here? Me being here, I don't really want to be here, but I'd rather be out there planting churches, but in God's providence of all things, I'm, I'm, I'm here. But I want you to know, brothers, and I want you to rejoice with me as I rejoice, even in my difficulty. And, and uh, Jason preached two sermons on, on rejoicing even through difficulty, and you should go back and listen to them if you didn't hear them. And so we're not going to go deep into this, but real quickly, he says, one, the, the guards are hearing, hearing the gospel. Actually, look at what it says, that it has become known throughout the whole or the entire imperial guard and to all the rest. Not just the soldiers, but the soldiers and their families and the cooks and the bakers and everyone else that's serving Nero, everyone that's, that's in the palace knows that my imprisonment is actually for Christ. This is amazing. The entire Imperial Guard. Now, these are the people that actually, like, this is the Secret Service, the Imperial Guard. They're, they're the ones that, that work directly with Caesar and his leaders. These are the most trusted soldiers, you could guess, the most vetted. These are the top of the top of the top. And, and you can bet that these aren't really sensitive men. And it's these men that know that his imprisonment is for Christ and that many of them are coming to Christ, are profess, professing salvation in Christ because Paul is there. From this we see that Paul could effectively minister and bring glory to God in less than ideal circumstances. He didn't need anything to be easy and set in order to be fruitful. Look at verse 14. This is the second reason. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak. Who? Who's more? The, the brothers. The brothers in Rome or the church in Rome that he's actually there. They're coming over every day, right? He's in, on, in house arrest. But also in Philippi and also in Ephesus and also in Colossae where he wrote these letters from. All of these people who are caring for, the, for him are being emboldened by Paul being in prison and presenting the gospel without fear. It says that they have become confident in, in the Lord, confident in the Lord, and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is such a, if you underline, would you underline, to speak, as my translation says, much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
I think one of the main reasons that we don't share our faith is because we're afraid. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of not knowing all the answers. We're afraid of being hypocritical ourselves. Maybe we're afraid of persecution. These people were facing death or imprisonment or best case scenario for them was being kicked out of their families and their cities and having to start all over. Yet for some reason, because Paul is so adamant and willing to share the gospel no matter what happens even in prison and they're seeing the movement of the gospel while he's in prison it gives them more boldness and confidence to share the word without fear so Paul's awaiting trial and I've just asked myself over why are they so confident as Paul's awaiting trial and likely death as he's in prison on house arrest he's spreading the gospel with boldness and I think they're seeing if the worst they can do to me is imprisonment like Paul and the gospel still goes forward or death like they're charging Paul with and he says it's, gonna, it's better to die. It's going to be gain to die because I'm going to go be with Christ. What, what can you do with someone like that? Paul says no matter what happens here, you can imprison me or torture me or you can even kill me. This is going to be a win-win scenario for me. This is win-win. If I stay, you're going to hear the gospel. And if I go, I'm going to spend eternity with Christ. That kind of confidence inspires many. And I want to look back as we kind of just peel the layers of what Paul's going. If you, if you, if you would, flip over to Acts 16. We looked at this in the intro, but this is, this is the beginning of the church at Philippi being started. Remember, it starts with... Uh, Lydia, the seller of uh, purple cloth, wealthy, connected. It starts with a slave girl being delivered of this demonic presence. And it starts with this Philippian jailer. In Acts 16, and we're going to start in verse 22, but Paul and Silas have heard this word from God and they no longer continue in Asia. They, they go across the sea to Europe. And this is the first Christian work in Europe that's recorded. And so they're, they're actually on this missionary journey, Paul and Silas, trying to plant this first Christian church in Europe. And they're proclaiming the gospel. And as they proclaim the gospel, this de demon is crying out of this slave girl whose masters are making money off of her uh, fortune-telling abilities. And it says, and I love how Acts records it, um, how Luke writes it in the book of Acts, that it, they, it annoyed Paul so much every time this demon would, would cry out that he cast this demon out of this girl and then the owners lost the golden goose because now she can't, you know, make them any money. And so they go and this is where we pick up. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave them order to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So you get the picture. They're in this nasty prison. Their feet are actually, you know, in some kind of clamped device where they can't move and I, I think I even told you that most people believe that the word they use there they're being stretched actually they're stretching their body as far as they can without ripping the flesh and that's the kind of stocks they're in so they're so uncomfortable 
uh, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were uh, praying and singing hymns to God like you do when you're miserable. That's just what happens. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He's doing the noble thing. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he baptized them at once, he and all his family. And he brought them into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is an incredible passage. Can you try to put yourself in Paul's shoes, Paul's sandals, maybe? He's in, pres- he's in prison for preaching the gospel and healing this little girl. And he's being persecuted because of his preaching the gospel. And he doesn't stop preaching the gospel. And then he's released from prison by this miraculous earthquake. And if I was released, I would think, man, God came through. This is amazing, right? And I would head out and start doing whatever I was doing before all this stuff happened. But he doesn't do that. And I think it speaks real motives about Paul's heart. He doesn't leave. I think most of us would bolt that very night, but not Paul. He cares about the jailer and he cares about his soul. And that care translated into the conversion of the jailer and everyone else is in, is in, uh, in his house. Church history tells us this jailer became the leader, the pastor of this new Philippian church. Paul understood something, and I think we understand it too, but I want to remind us all. People need Jesus. This is the heart of reconciliation that Paul had that would keep him from bolting and getting on with his strategy to plant the church. He cared about the soldier's heart. He cared about his soul. He cared about his life. What if we had such a passion and such a priority for sharing the gospel? Most people love evangelism as long as somebody else is doing it. Wouldn't we agree with that? Oh, we love evangelism. We love the fact of people coming to faith. We love when we get to store the, stir the baptismal waters, which we're going to do here in a couple weeks. We love the sign of life change and, and radical paradigm shift and people tasting that God is good and radically change. We, we love that as long as somebody else is doing the work. If you flip over one page to Acts 17... Acts 17 gives us this unusual and vital insight into Paul and his strategy for evangelism and sharing the gospel. And these are kind of the two points of the sermon is a heart and a habit. 
Paul had a heart for finding people. It says in chapter 17, verse 16, while, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. In Acts 17, Paul has left Philippi and he's on his way through uh, these little towns in Europe and he begins to share the gospel and to plant these new churches. But I want us to see his heart. It says here in verse 16 that he was greatly distressed or maybe, maybe your translation says that he was overwhelmed or brokenhearted to see that the city was full of idols. It burdened him. It frustrated him because he cared about those people. Paul's heart was like the heart of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them. If you remember in Matthew 9, because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Paul, like Jesus, had compassion. He was burdened because the people had no shepherds and they had no pastors and they had no true spiritual leaders. No one to care for them, to crawl under their hurt with them. to talk to them, to love them through their confusion and their pain, no one to rescue them or retrieve them or restore them or take care of them. This made Jesus weep. You know, Jesus only wept over two things, over people and over cities. This is the heart of Jesus that Paul has. And friends, this is not for the super Christian. This is for all of us, that we should have the heart of Jesus, that we should care and be compelled, that we should be burdened. When we see the brokenness in our society, we shouldn't be judgmental. It should break our hearts that people even more today are so confused. Friends, you don't get that burden from someone else's website. Or from reading a book, you, you actually get it downloaded from Jesus into your heart. You get it from allowing God to heal your own pain and allowing God to expose you to real life stories of people who are hurting. Do you and I have that kind of heart for our city, our region, our people? Is that really our heart? Burden for those around us that are lost like sheep? who need us to be their shepherd? Can we see with kingdom eyes, with spiritual eyes, and notice people's pain and their weariness and their emptiness and their fear and their frustration? Yesterday I was at Home Depot, like I am most days. And uh, it's just my, it's my, it's my therapy, it's fine. I don't always buy, buy things, just walking around Home Depot the smell of wood and power tools. It just does it for me. It's just, uh, and free coffee when you walk in. So, I mean, what else do you really want in life? So, that's where I make my after lunch laps. And uh, I, I told you a long time ago that this is kind of the way that I pray. In the, in the mornings, uh, I pray up, right? And I connect to the heart of God. And at lunchtime, I pray out and I start praying for the lost. And at nighttime, I pray in. I pray, I pray for my people before I go to bed. And so this, is, this helps me pray out. So you see my truck at Home Depot almost every day. You'll know why it's there. And I'm walking around. I mean, if I find a good deal, I'll buy it. I don't want to over-spiritualize what's going on. But I'm getting some paint yesterday. And I could tell the, the lady working behind the paint, she was just overwhelmed 
And so I just started talking to her, and I noticed her little name tag, and it was spelled pretty uniquely. I'd never seen a name spelled like that. Her name was Naya, and I said, hey, Naya, that's a really cool way to spell your name. Tell me about that. And we just started talking back and forth, and I asked her about her family and how long she's been working at Home Depot. And it was one of those moments. You know those moments? We, I think we call them Kairos moments where you just time stands still for a minute. And if you've ever been to Home Depot, there's a thousand people at the paint counter. No one came. Just me and Naya. And she told me her kids' names, Nova and Skye. She told me she had to work a 16-hour shift that day because somebody else got fired. She told me she was having some marriage problems. I got a chance to minister to her in the middle of a Home Depot. And this is not to brag on me. I miss more opportunities than I cease. But ever since I met her, I've been praying every waking hour that I've been awake, I've been praying for her, that God would save her. She's really into astrology and these kind of things. And isn't it amazing that the God of the Bible is the one that put those stars in place? Able to share just a little, just plant a little gospel seed, and I'm praying that it comes to fruition. But th- this, is, this is what it's like to, to live with a burden for people. Do you and I have that kind of heart for our city? Listen, this is not a guilty sermon. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about it. But we brag about and celebrate and we talk about the things that matter the most to us. Paul just had this habit of heart for reaching people and he had this habit for reaching people. We don't have time to go through all of the rest of Acts 17, but maybe just a few verses. In verse 2, he's he's in two cities that I can't even tell what they are, Amphipolis, that sounds like a disease, and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue, and Paul went in, and it says here, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, that's three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. This is, this is his habit. He's got these holy habits. It says it was his custom to go to the synagogue first, and he's trying to reach the religious lost. That was his pattern, his strategy. Move on down to verse 17. He says that he does this day by day. He does this daily. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. In the marketplace, it mentions, he's there every day. And he's reasoning with the irreligious lost. And I want us just to notice his consistency and his pattern and his strategy, strategy and his habit. I love, too, that it says that he, he ministered with those who just happened to be there. Here, here's what I want us to notice, friends. That ministry is not something you do in a day. Ministry, serving the Lord, reaching other people is something you do every day. It's something you do daily. 
We met this morning in ministry teams and it's great and I hope you get plugged in, plugged in and I hope you learn to serve the body and we, we share uh, the burdens of each other and, and, and it takes a lot to pull all this off. If we've been a mobile church for now almost 12 years and there's a lot of serving teams and people needing to serve with the joy of the Lord and that is so important but, but that's not all that ministry is. It's just showing up and serving one day. Ministry is what you do daily. It's what you set your heart towards. It's what your habits are wrapped around. If I wanted to go and run a marathon, I couldn't just go work out next Tuesday and then, bam, I'm in shape to run a marathon. No, you see, you see this hunk of whatever this is up here, like, it's going to take me a quick minute and maybe a lung, lung transplant. Ministry is what you do daily. And I was really praying and thinking, Lord, why, why do we not do this? Why does the church in the West, is this not important to us? One, I think, because most of us have lost the heart of Jesus. His heart was not just the religious duty. He had a, a heart Jesus did for the last, the lost, and the least. And if we're not careful, the culture will suck the heart of Jesus right out of us. It'll reduce our life to just chasing after comfort and control. I think many of us have lost the heart of Jesus, but then secondly, I think some of us just feel so overwhelmed. We let fear control the narrative. And this is what we see is happening with these other churches. In Philippians 1, as Paul says, because I'm in here, others, have been, others are growing in their confidence and boldness in sharing the gospel. They too were given into a spirit of fear. The challenges of our culture are immense. I get these questions all the time. How can Jesus be the only way to heaven? How could a loving God send people to hell? What about pain and suffering and science and faith? Can you really even trust the Bible? It wouldn't have written a long time ago. Look at the horrible things the church has done in the past. What about the LGBTQ and how does the church respond to that? And on and on those questions go and they're getting, they're getting more confusing. Many people feel, they really do, like they need a PhD in biblical ethics to be able to share the gospel. But friends, the Great Commission didn't come with caveats. It didn't come with reasons that we're let off the hook. Hey, when things get difficult and confusing, you know, in the 21st century, y'all don't have to worry about this anymore. I think a lot of us are just overwhelmed and add to that that some of us aren't walking with Jesus and the thought of evangelism is just too much. Our culture is moving further and further away from a Christian framework. That's certainly evidence. But that doesn't change God's heart for the lost. And that doesn't change, church, the very reason we are here. He sent someone to tell you and show you the gospel. He sent someone. Maybe it was a Christian parent, a Sunday school teacher, a next door neighbor, a godly grandmother. Maybe some friends' parents. Maybe some radical road to Damascus kind of conversion. He sent someone to show you. And he is sending you to show someone else. 
This is the priority of heaven, friends. This is your and my responsibility. We are the people that God has entrusted the message of the gospel to. I got a few points of application. Before I get there, just let me wrap them all in this. It, it starts with intentionality. It starts with open eyes and an open heart and an open schedule. Open eyes that we could see as Jesus sees. God, maybe a prayer. God, send me to the people who need to hear your good news today. When's the last time you prayed that? Or an open heart to feel as Jesus feels, to weep over lost people and lost cities, even as Jesus did, how it controlled the narrative of, of his life. He said multiple times, I did not come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I came for those that are lost. I came for the last, the lost, and the least. That's why I'm here. And then Jesus very clearly told the disciples, just as God sent me on a rescue mission from heaven to earth, I'm now sending you, my followers, that you would go into your networks and, and you would go into your neighborhoods and you would go even to the nations and you would bring the gospel to them. That we would feel as Jesus feels. Some of you know what it's like to have an adult child or even teenage children that are not believers. And how it breaks your heart and how you pray for them. We were talking about that in the prayer room today. How the last thing his dad was praying was for the salvation of his kids. And absolutely, when we get these little prayer cards in every week, there's half a dozen of people that are just praying for the salvation of their kids. And, and, and we intercede with you and we're praying for the salvation of your kids. But it's not just your kids. Absolutely, that's, that's your first priority. That's the first place you make disciples. But everyone in the world were made into the image of God. They're God's kids. God weeps over them. He sent Jesus on a rescue mission to save them. And somehow, and I have no idea how this works, Jesus says it's going to be better for me to leave and the spirit to come because he's going to indwell you as you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Church, there's no, there's no other plan. There's no other people coming to save the day. There's, there's no tag team in this thing. Open eyes, open heart, open schedule. This, this may be the most convicting to me. If you know me, I, my schedule is pretty full and I like it full. I, I like my schedule like I like to play Tetris. You know, Tetris, everything has like a place it fits in. And I like, to, I like to do my schedule that way. You know, if I'm going to go over to Shreveport on Monday or Tuesday, I want to meet everybody I need to meet in Shreveport while I'm over there. So save me drive time, save me gas money. And I, for a long time, I've called that stewardship. And maybe some of it is, but very little time in my schedule for interruption. Very little time in my schedule for people at Home Depot. This is not how Jesus led. You, you, remember, you remember the story of Zacchaeus? He's up in the, he's up in the, he's the, remember the wee little man? He's up in the tree and 
the whole bit, and Jesus comes, and this is in Jericho. You remember this? And Jericho's where all the priests were. It's where the World Council of Churches was at the time. Of all the it's, it's where all the top people live, and Jesus is on his way to meet with, with the elite of the elite of the elite and the elite city of Jericho, and he's on his way. And he blows up the whole schedule because he meets a man up in a tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, won't you come down? Because I'm going to go to your house today. Can you imagine? All the, all the things that they had prepared. All the people who wanted to sit down with him. And no, he spent that evening with Zacchaeus. Because Jesus just led with an open schedule. Or the woman with the issue of blood. Or Jairus' daughter. Or the centurion's son. On and on we could go. Jesus just had time. Actually, most of the ministry that Jesus did was actually on his way somewhere else. This is, this is what he does. It starts with us becoming intentional about having open eyes and open hearts and an open schedule. Now, let me tell you, if you pray and ask the Lord to do this, he's going to do it. He's going to start to give you his eyes so you can see people who are broken or in transition or, 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 or needy or cries for help. He's going to give you... He's going to give you a heart. You're going to begin. I, I remember one of the first times I prayed this. I was a youth pastor. I was praying this. And God broke my heart. I was supposed to speak at a youth event. Robin was there in the youth group. Maybe Lydia. She may have been gone by then. God broke my heart so deeply for those teenagers that I wept for 24 hours. I couldn't preach. My heart was broken. I remember the first night, it was like a little retreat. The first night, songs start playing just like we do, kind of like we do here. Songs start playing. I'm getting my notes ready. And God breaks my heart. I go to the altar. I begin weeping over these kids that I had brought with me. This is the so unique thing about me being a youth pastor because I did not like teenagers at all. They, they really annoyed me, especially at that time. And God opened my heart. Today, I still love teenagers because God so radically changed my heart. And I'm crying out for these teenagers. And I get up to preach, and I can't preach. I'm just crying. I'm weeping. And I would love to say that, like, the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory came down, and everybody got saved, and the Holy Spirit preached for it. None of that happened. Everybody was like, well, I guess we're not getting preached to today. And the band sang a couple more songs, and they went back down the hill. And that's how it ended. I kept crying. I was able to sleep a little bit, but every time I would wake up, that burden was just so heavy on my heart. I'd begin to pray and labor in prayer and weep for these kids. And the next day, I wasn't able to preach again. I was just too weepy. But the Holy Spirit did a work that night that I've never seen. All these teenagers are... I was so prude, I didn't know anything. I was just so sheltered, you know. Homeschool kid, mostly, that like, didn't know anything. These kids are bringing to me their drugs and their glass paraphernalia. And I'm, kid, I'm not kidding. They, they bring it to me, and I throw it all in the fire. And then everybody's getting high, everybody. I just throw all this marijuana in the fire, and somebody's like, uh, Luke, I don't, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Everybody back away from the fire. I started praying that God would give me a burden for these teenagers, and he did. 
And God will give you that same burden too. We're out of time. Let, let me give you three quick habits so we can finish this thing off. These are real simple. One, it starts with prayer. We should be praying for the Holy Spirit to move in people's hearts and lives. Just like when Paul came to start this church and he found Lydia and it says that her heart was opened to the gospel. We should be praying that very thing. There's some people that we know that aren't walking with Jesus. There's some people we know that they don't really, they've never really believed the gospel. They may have been in church a long, they've never believed it. They're so heavy on our heart. God's put them in our life and we're interceding for them, one hand in heaven and one hand holding on to them. And we are praying that God would do the supernatural, that he would take a heart of stone and exchange it for a heart of flesh. That's what we're praying. And it starts with prayer when we align our heart and God's heart and praying for people. Do you have people that you pray for? Not, not just occasionally. I mean the discipline, the continuous fervent prayer of the righteous, James says, availeth much, right? I used to have an intern that had such a gift in prayer that every day that she made these little note cards and she laminated them and, and put them on a little ring through them. And as she ran, she was a runner uh, for her college, and as she ran, she would flip through these cards and she would just pray. Pray for Chase that he would come to salvation. I pray for Jenny that she would find Jesus. And she just had what she was praying, and she would just pray and pray and pray. Now, don't try that at home if you're not like an elite runner. I couldn't do that. I would die. For sure, I would die. That was just not a thing. But to find a way that we would bring these people before the Lord, and we would partner with him, and his heart would be downloaded into our heart, and we would see him do the actual supernatural thing. It starts with prayer. Second, this is the second habit. So the habit of prayer, the second, the habit of presence. Sometimes just repeatedly showing up in a person's life with no agenda but to love them well earns you the right to be heard. So what Peter talks about, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. We see this with Paul. He just kept showing up in the marketplace every day, every day, every day. He just kept showing up in the synagogue every day, every day, every day. Reasoning with these people. He showed up for the Philippian jailer. Just the ministry of presence. Look for people in transition. Look for people under tension. Then thirdly, this is the third habit. Be ready to actually share the gospel. Now this can take so many different forms. As with Paul, he shares the gospel differently in the synagogue than he does in the city. With the lost, he starts with culture. With the religious, he starts with the common ground that they might have. But be ready to share the actual God. This doesn't have to be PhD level, walking through all of Scripture. It doesn't have to be that. Sometimes it's the most effective tool and witnessing you have is your story. I would encourage all of you this week. I was going to try to take some time today. I just don't think we're going to have it. For you to just write out your two-minute story. What was your life like before you met Christ? How did you meet Christ? What has your life been like since you met Christ? That's your story. Nobody can argue with your story. Nobody can debate it. It is a beautiful thing for you to know your story and know how to get to it from whatever conversation. You'll see people. There's some people have a gift of evangelism, like, like Rick McDonald. Maybe there's others in this room. They just do this so naturally. It's, it's really inspiring that they can take talking about a 
a speeding ticket and, and turn it to forgiveness and entrance into heaven. I don't know how they do it. They, they, they're incredible at it. But we should all be able to tell our gospel story. Maybe you want to use the Romans road. I got to use the Romans road with my son this week. And, and don't be impressed. I don't have all the scripture memorized. I just start with Romans 6.23. That's where I start. And then next to Romans 6.23 in my Bible, it says Romans 3.23. So then I flip over there and even wages sin and death, give God eternal life. And then right there it says Romans 5.8. And it's like, so then I just flip over to Romans 5.8. And, and, then, and then next to it it says Romans 10.9. And I just flip over to 10.9. And I just have them written in my Bible. And, and I just, I, I've, I've walked hundreds of people across the line of faith just through that little thing. Just because I had one scripture reference memorized. Romans 6.23, start there. And then I just carried my Bible wherever I went. Just have some way that you're able to do this. Some of you are going to use the big meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You can do that. If that's one of the things you want to do, you can use this. So many phenomenal things. But it starts with open eyes and an open heart and an open schedule. The intentionality. Here's the point. And we're going to, we're going to be done. I'm going to invite the band up. You got these little popsicle sticks in your hand. I want everybody to grab a little popsicle stick and hopefully you got a pen. We're going to write something on the popsicle sticks in a little bit and not your name. Don't, you don't, don't write your name. When I first started in ministry, if you didn't get a popsicle stick, there's probably one close to you somewhere or somebody can bring you one. Just kind of wave your hand. Heather's back there. She can give you one if you didn't give one. When I first started in ministry and uh, I was actually in seminary, and uh, my uncle Chip was uh, a traveling evangelist. If you ever met him, you'd never forget him. He was six eight, had this incredible mullet. Even when they're popular, not popular, he did not care. Had this huge mullet, and uh, and he just had this joy in his life and this like boldness to share the gospel anywhere and everywhere. He had this heart for the lost that was unbelievable. I'd never, I've never seen anything. He would share the gospel at these random places, and if they didn't come to Christ, he would just weep over them. So Chip had a family crisis, and he called me to come help him with a, with a summer of camps. And I just, as God did it, I was cutting grass at the time. I, I got fired from all my grass businesses, and uh, like the weekend before, and I was free. I don't know how it happened, but he says, Luke, can you come help me? And so I went up there to help him, and we went to a place called Pig Camp. Some of you have seen it up there before. It's really called Mountain Springs, but they raised pigs. So everybody called it Pig Camp. And I saw God move more on, at that place than any other place in my life. We get there, and we're kind of going through the thing. This is this open-air chapel, and there's, like, dogs wandering and chickens. It's like you're in a third world, but it's not. It's just in Arkansas. And uh, <laughs> no kidding, I show up in my uh, all-white Nike Air Max. There's not a paved thing on this. There's nothing. It is all mud and manure on this whole hill and a little gravel and I show up and uh Roger the guy who runs the camp just laughed at me he's like I'm gonna have to get you a pair of boots son I was like okay let's do it we get there and we start doing ministry for these kids and th these are the poorest of poor kids that I've ever met in my life a lot of them get dropped off for this little free camp with no shoes one the change of clothes that's on them that's it no paperwork <laughs> no nothing and uh, Chip tells me, hey, what we're going to do is, uh, you know what I like to do? I like to get these kids to write the people they're praying for on the little popsicle sticks because they're really cheap. And 
And then I just keep them with me and we just pray over them every day. And I just got big stacks of them. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, this is me. I'm coming in. I'm seminary trained. Seminary trained. We didn't learn anything about that in seminary. None about popsicle sticks. And I kind of laugh it off a little bit. And I'm like, Chip, I know you're ridiculous, but this is extra ridiculous. He's like, would you do it? Would you just write something you're praying for on this little popsicle stick? I did. And we did it every night, and we saw these kids who came from lost homes, and many of them were lost. And they would get saved. It was only two nights, maybe three nights. They'd, get, they'd, they'd come to Jesus the first night, and their life was so radically changed and so burdened for their parents. Well, this summer, we happened to be traveling all over rural Arkansas, Every church that held less than 75 people, those, that's the churches we went to. And we would do these little revivals in between these camp dates. It was so miraculous because these little kids that came to this free camp, 50, 60 kids, maybe the first week of the summer, we told them that we were coming to their town eventually. And these were little bitty towns that had one stoplight. They knew when we were coming in. And so they would drag their mommy and daddy to the church service. And they would come in drunk or high. But the faith of a little 10-year-old to put someone's name on a popsicle stick. And I got a hundred stories, at least, of that one summer of these moms and dads being radically saved because a 10-year-old had the faith to write a name on a popsicle stick and start praying for them. And church, if I'm just real honest with you, if we don't have the heart of Jesus for our city, we're just wasting our time. This building, buildings, is worth nothing if we don't have the heart of Jesus for the last, the lost, and the least. And I pray collectively that God would break our heart for the lost in our city. That we would wake up weeping at night for the lost. That God would give us opportunity even tomorrow. I don't know what it is about evangelicalism in the West. It's like we just don't care anymore. We're just so comfortable. I want to give you the opportunity. Just The band's going to do two songs. You've got plenty of time. I want to give you the opportunity to write a name or a couple names on that popsicle stick. And just as a physical act, we're going to write a name on a popsicle stick. And as the band sings, they're going to be leading us. I just want you to come down and just drop it on the stage somewhere. Just come drop your popsicle stick. Pray, write the name, pray over it. We're going to put these in our church office. And we're just going to start, every time we're together, we're going to pray over these with you. We're going to intercede with you over the lost. Those that are burdened your hearts. Maybe you're in the room today and, and you're not a believer. You're just kicking the tires on this thing. You really don't know if you believe all this or not. Maybe you would write your own name on there. Maybe you've you've been a believer, but you're really struggling with doubt and deconstruction, I think is the fancy name for it these days, whatever it is. Maybe you would just write your own name and say, would you just pray for me? I believe, but would you pray for my unbelief? Maybe it's somebody near and dear to you that's really walking through just the toughest season of their life. Maybe you just write their name on there. I'm going to pray. 
the band's going to sing. Me and a couple of the prayer team are going to be in the back. Maybe before you walk down here and drop this stick off, maybe you just want to come grab one of us and say, hey, will you pray with me for this, for this person, for this need? Maybe your kids are lost. You just want us to intercede. This is a perfect time for it. Lord, I pray you would do in our hearts what needs to be done. Or would you break our hearts for the things that broke your heart, that still break your heart? Lord, I pray for all these names that are being written even right now, all over this room, friends and families and moms and dads, diseases of sickness and cancer, questions of faith and doubt and struggle. God, we believe your word tells us that there's nothing impossible with you, nothing. Lord, would you take this faith and practice, us writing these names down and dropping it on a stage in the middle of a gymnasium. Lord, would you do the supernatural in the lives of these people? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do what God puts on your heart. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with somebody.